0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And my first interreligious conversation was uh, for a high school religion assignment in the wake of that. the two we were supposed to interview a leader from another religion, so I phoned my local rabbi and had a very good conversation with him. And so from the time I was young, I had this on my radar screen as one of the major issues. When I was in graduate school, my mentors, people like David Tracy and Michael Gilkey, we're constantly obsessing over interreligious issues. How do we rethink Christian theology? What is religion? What does the religious mean? And then, when I was preparing for my doctoral house, I got an invitation to come to Bangkok from a couple whose marriage I had presided at in my first parish. And along the way, in Japan, in Bangkok, I spent time in a monastery in the north of Thailand, in Burma, and then in Bali. I was partly intrigued by the aesthetic expressions of Buddhism and Hinduism. And so partly it was an aesthetic appeal. In the monastery, I never came anywhere close to samadhi, but I had a sense that there's something important in Buddhist meditation that I wanted to explore further. So it was not simply intellectual, it was also aesthetic and spiritual. And then as I was finishing my doctoral studies, Asal Abe was visiting professor at the University of Chicago. He was a Zen Buddhist thinker, one of the leaders in shaping Buddhist Christian conversations in the United States in those years. And I I got to know him and then he was the sponsor for me on a postdoctoral research grant I received that sent me to Kyoto, uh, where he was based. And he introduced me to a whole circle of Japanese scholars, both Buddhist and Christian, which completely challenged all my intellectual assumptions. Because Bahayana Buddhism is a very, very different worldview than anything in Western thought. And what's kept me going ever since is partly the need. Religion is one of the most important but problematic forces in the world today. There's many, many conflicts in which religion plays a problematic role. But again and again, in my own experience, I've met wonderful people from one tradition after another wrestling with similar problems, and that's what gives me hope for the future. And so it's intellectual, it's practical in terms of trying to transform conflicts, it's aesthetic in the sense of response to these beautiful works of art um, from other traditions. Um, So it's meant in many layers for me.
1: Uh, you referred to Vatican II. Uh, from, a, from a Roman Catholic perspective, uh, after Vatican II there was a big opening uh, to the other religions and cultures, institutional, officially. But we also have a witness that this opening was overshadowed at certain moments. In uh, the last 10 to 15 years, for example, open a 16 negative comment from Islam in his lecture, and everything. Uh, and how do you assess this historical tragedy, which can do, must not try it. To, to oh. Open up. Windows to the other religious tradition, and then be also witness to a a backward uh, direction of this progressive trend.
0: Pope John XXIII had a personal audience with a French Jewish historian, Jules Isaac, who had lost most of his family in the Shoah. He had written a whole book on the teaching of contempt and presented in John Twenty-third a request that the upcoming council address the issue and change the historic Catholic teaching against the Jews that was untrue and unjust. And he presented a copy of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, which said Jesus Christ died for the sins of all people. And so he asked, if this is true in your own teaching, why do you blame the Jews? That put interreligious dialogue on the agenda of the Second Vatican Council. It appears from the reports that prior to the meeting with Jules Bissart, he had been thinking of uh, ecumenical relations with other Christian communities, but not really to religious. So after this, he entrusted responsibility to Cardinal Vea, and there were fights from the beginning. So it's not like backlash comes later. From the very beginning, there were conservative voices who said, particularly the Catholic Church cannot change. Council of Florence solemnly defined, Jews and all of the schismatics and heretics who don't enter the Catholic Church before the end of their life, they're going to burn in hell forever. So you had what seemed like an infallible statement. Nonetheless, there's this overwhelming sense from the leaders of the Catholic Church that especially in the wake of the Shoah, the Catholic Church had to condemn anti-Semitism and renounce the traditional teaching blaming Jews for the death of Jesus. This set in motion a whole series of other events. In 1964, Pope Paul VI went to Jerusalem, met with Muslim leaders on an unprecedented level, and had friendly conversations with them. He sets up an organ in the Vatican for relations with other traditions, goes to India at the end of the year, and quotes the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad as a positive text. You never have. So these are kind of epical shifts that then the teachings of the Second Vatican Council come in the wake of these, which fundamentally shift the attitude from one of kind of blanket condemnation of other religions to the basic principle the Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in other religions. And so everything that we're doing in Catholic involvement in interreligious relations is in the wake of this. The negative things, there are certainly questions of how to frame the relationship with other traditions. Vatican II left open the question of how other religions can contribute positively to salvation. But it says this we accept everything that is true and holy in other religions. That implies there is truth and holiness. And so this is one of the areas of ongoing exploration. In 2006, I think it was, Pope Benedict was giving. An academic lecture in Regensburg, and he thought, in his mind, I think, he was still a German professor, where you have your footnotes, and your footnotes say, This expert says this, and so on. And so he was quoting an expert named Khoury on the dating of a certain passage in the Quran, There is no coercion in religion, and dated it to the early period in Mecca when Muhammad didn't have any power, really, and then interpreted the more violent passages as later in the medieval period, and also made some comments on faith and reason, assuming that a certain medieval strand of Islam was Islam, and then threw in an attack on the Franciscans for good measure. And this aroused a furor in the Islamic world. He had not vetted this with Michael Fitzgerald, who had earlier been the head of the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue, a Catholic priest with a doctorate on Islam, who could have preserved him from some of the misinterpretations of Islam. About a month after the talk in Regensburg, 38 Islamic scholars sent a letter to Pope Benedict with a very careful response saying that a vast majority of Muslim scholars don't accept the dating, the principle there's no coercion in religion is not early, it's later. Meaning, when Muhammad had effective political control of an area, he believed there should be no coercion in religion. And then challenging the construction of faith and reason. And that didn't really do much by way of response. A year later, the real response comes. 138 Muslim leaders from different nations and different Islamic traditions, kind of convened by the King of Jordan, issue a completely unprecedented statement, a common word between us and you. It's a line from the Quran. And it grounds Muslim-Christian relations in the two commandments from Torah, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and mind and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. They sent this not only to Pope Benedict, but to a long, 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 long list of Christian leaders. So it's an unprecedented outreach. This led to a whole series of meetings in different places. We hosted a couple of them at Georgetown, and Georgetown University, where I teach, is the North American Center for the Ongoing Common Word Project. So it's a good example of how misunderstanding can be productive if we know how to process it. Mm-hmm. One theological point here. Nostradamus
1: acknowledges at least three pillars of Islam, fasting, Uh, prayer and then uh, almsgiving but not the role of the prophet and hajj when it comes to the common word between us and you it's the synoptic gospels that have been quoted John is missing so you find this Incompatibility, or oh, you know, holy God, irreconcilable uh separation of
0: understanding between the two traditions. Any comment on this? At Nosferate, yeah. there were debates over the proposal of Louis Massignon. He was a French Islamist who had been the mentor for the future Paul VI back in the nineteen twenties. He had become Catholic after a personal crisis and a failed suicide attempt, where he had hospitality from an Arab Muslim family in Baghdad, and that he had a special mission to pray for the the Muslims, not for conversion, but for better relationships. And he interpreted Muhammad as a prophet in the line of Abraham, who received the basic message of monotheism as a corrective for Jews and Christians. So this was debated in the council and was rejected in the conciliar debates. That was in a sense a bridge too far. Now, Louis Massignon died at the end of October 1962, one month after Pope John XXIII opened the council. So he didn't live to see his former mentee, Cardinal Martini, or Montini, become... Pope Paul VI, so he was not present during these, but he was very well, he was the alternative that they considered. And I think they weren't ready for any statement. So Nostra Aetate makes no statement on Islam, it talks about Muslims, it makes no statement on the Quran, it doesn't make any statement on the Prophet Muhammad. In a sense, anything they would have said probably would have made matters worse. In terms of the present, the new thing going on is on an unprecedented level, people are studying the Hebrew Bible. Christian New Testament and the Quran as three testaments in an intertextual relationship. And it's not completely clear in the original texts that they differ. Even the question of the end of Jesus' earthly life is open to different interpretations in the Quran. The Quran says the Jews didn't kill him. This is a staple of current Jewish-Christian dialogue and all. In terms of the Shahada, a lot depends on how you interpret there is no God but God. It's certainly true that Muslims traditionally have interpreted this to reject the Trinity. Now, what do you mean by Trinity? Christians profess monotheism. One of my Muslim colleagues said, we don't understand what you mean by the Trinity. By the way, that's the whole Christian tradition saying we don't understand what you mean by the Trinity either. But, she went on, if you say you're monotheist, we trust you. And then there's certainly people like, say, to say Nasr, who would want to make space within an Islamic framework for acknowledging Christianity. And certainly, dialogue partners that I've been with in the United States in the Muslim world, they would see us as monotheistic. They don't quite know what to make of the Trinity. And so you have this kind of lack of clarity, but an openness to acceptance on both sides. Leo, let's move on to a different uh, domain. Mostly
1: interreligious dialogue unfolds among the major religious traditions. When it comes to the US, we have indigenous traditions both brought by the African American population and the Native Americans. What are the areas that indigenous dialogue partners are? Know, try to incorporate the African American spiritualities and also the Native American
0: cosmologies. In terms of the African religious traditions, there's a debate among scholars over how much was preserved in the Middle Passage. Everybody would say there's some elements that are preserved. It's a question of how much or how little. And so you have kind of the maximalists who say there's an awful lot of African religious tradition that's preserved in the religious practices of those who were enslaved. Um, We don't know how many were Muslim. High estimate is 20%. Uh, Certainly some of them were. And there's a few areas where Islam was allowed to be practiced. But overwhelmingly they were never given the rights of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. They'd be persecuted for being Muslim. They could become Christian. And some have thought it's because of the African religious background that African-Americans respond to the First Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s, that the highly emotional style and the the song, shout, and so on, different things. There was a kind of a merging of these in shaping African-American tradition. And this is certainly of interest to African-American scholars today. With American Indians, it's a conflicted history. On the one hand, you have some of the Christian missionaries, including Catholic missionaries, who are open to discovering goodness in the indigenous traditions. Often, this was just dismissed as devil worship and superstition. So, you find the whole spectrum. Today, there's basically three options for the American Indians. Some reject Christianity altogether because of the heritage. Um, of oppression and abuse. And there are some who are more militant who say, you can't be an authentic American Indian leader unless you renounce Christianity. So that's one perspective. There's some American Indians who practice Christianity and do not in any way want to continue the indigenous practices. Often this is what they were taught in an earlier era, and so they just do that. There's others who in some way want to integrate their lives as Christians, including as Catholics, and the indigenous practices. In some places, like in New Mexico, it's a both-and. So they'll go to Catholic Mass on Sunday, and then they'll also do the indigenous ceremonies as a separate moment, and they'll insist there's no contradiction between them. What's been very controversial is trying to merge. So when a Catholic priest brings a sacred pipe into the Eucharist, is that appropriate or not? After the Second Vatican Council, a lot of anglo priests thought, well, we're going to be open to this. We're not as negative as the earlier generations. And so they thought, in the name of openness, they could bring in a sacred pipe. Some Native peoples were highly offended because this is initiation, and you have to be properly initiated before you can handle a sacred pipe. And so there's been different um, explorations of this. What they sometimes done is have some masses that are simply the Catholic Eucharist and no indigenous practices, and then others where some indigenous practices are incorporated, but they list publicly beforehand that that's gonna happen so that any native people who would be offended by that will not come into it without being conscious that this is gonna happen. So there's no one position among indigenous um, Christians today in the United States. The other thing that's happening is through the, uh, the Kateri Tekakuita Conference, which is the national level organization for captive Indians, there is beginning to emerge more of a national consciousness. See, traditionally, there's no one Native American religion. The folks in Louisiana were completely different from the folks in New York, and they would never have heard of those in the pre-contact era. And so when then people construct a Native American spirituality, well, that's something brand new. This is not something indigenous. And the New Age people often had a hand in there and that often made it worse for some of the natives because they saw outsiders as once again taking over their tradition and then interpreting and packaging it. And so they're very sensitive often to outsiders coming in. So in these discernment things, what's often happened is you had, like Jesuit priests, like Ray Buckoff, doctor in anthropology, wrote on the Sioux religious traditions, they will be there as kind of consultants for the native Catholics, but they will not tell them what to do. They'll simply provide background and help in how to discern this.
1: When it comes to religiously supported conflicts, the protagonists who are engaged in these conflicts. Don't fight over religious proclaims. You don't see slogans or posters uh, that really reflect their particular religious proclaims, where uh, Mohammed is the prophet or Jesus is God. You know, these are not the slogans. The slogans are on class, race, ethnicity, nationality. On the other hand, we see most of the initiatives surrounding the religious dialogue happened quite isolated from these non-religious socio-economic political geopolitical aspects. Now you were travelling in Asia before you came there, Malaysia Burma, where we see conflict amongst the Buddhists and uh, Muslims and then the other between Muslims and uh, Hindu
0: so what is your take on this? Most interreligious conversations are not about experts, they're about people who are neighbors. And so I question a little bit uh, the way you were framing interreligious dialogue. The dialogue of life is the all-encompassing uh, dialogue, and this takes place on countless different levels. Like when I was in Mandalay, I had a wonderful morning with the uh, interfaith women's group, and they worked it all out. We're aware of there's all these terrible conflicts going on. But these women are friends, and they showed me their whole photo book of their fundraising activities for different charitable activities. We so had Buddhist and Catholic and Muslim women um, who know each other on a local level. Um, on the conflicts, often there's a form of ethno-religious nationalism that can take over. And here it's often a construction of identity where religion plays a role as a boundary marker. So in Myanmar, there's a Burman Buddhist majority who, not all of them, many of them are wonderful people, but there's a militant side that thinks they're, in a sense, the only authentic people in Myanmar. And they don't accept the Muslims. They're suspicious of Hindus. And part of this goes back to the British Empire. When Britain took over Burma, it was ruled as part of India. And the British had already trained Hindus and Muslims in how to run an empire. So they brought a lot of them in. They knew what the British wanted. So if you're an ordinary Burman Buddhist, you used to be of the dominant group. And now you're completely humiliated. And you're not dealing with the British. There's very few British people there. You're dealing with these Muslims and Hindus from India. This is behind the current conflict over what the outside world calls the Rohingya. They don't use that term in Myanmar. They'll talk about the Muslims in Rakhine State. And they're claim that they're not indigenous to this area, that they were brought in by the British. So if they want to prove that they were there, show the documents that you were there before the British came, meaning 1823. Because the British start coming in 1824, which is almost impossible to do. They're also against the other Buddhists, even from the other ethnic groups. There's a Rakhine uh, army. The Arakan army are Buddhists in the state of Rakhine that are in arms. There's a whole number of Christian groups. There were just about a week ago, there were peace talks with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. She's trying to retrieve her father's legacy, uh, the Paul-Lanian Agreement, from 1947. Uh, But only 15 of the 20 militant groups were represented in the peace talks. And so here, often you have religion as a factor. like for the Kachin Independence Army, they were never ruled by the Burman Buddhists. They were ruled by the British, but not by the Burman Buddhists. They think God gave them their land, and so they have a Christian theology of holy war coming out of the Bible against the Buddhists. I had dinner with the Catholic bishop. He's a a boss. He has 140,000 internally displaced people. He would like some kind of a compromise solution, but the Kachin Independence Army are on a mission from God, and so they're not going to do it. Then I went to uh, Malaysia, where you have a Malay-Muslim majority that similarly think they're the real citizens of Malaysia, and the other people don't really belong. And right now, there's a new government, so there's much more hope. Um, But not too many years ago, there were death threats against the Jesuit who's the editor of their newsweek paper because they were using the word Allah. So I had a long chat one afternoon with Father Lawrence Andrew, the editor of the Catholic Herald, over this. And he would literally have people come up alongside his car and larger vehicles down the bank into his. Um, And so at one point it was really very, very touch and go whether he was going to be killed or not for using the word Allah. And so that's an identity marker for the Malay Muslims in that context. So there I had an evening conversation with the, the Buddhist leaders in Kuala Lumpur, and at first they're all down talking about this. So it's kind of the flip side of the Muslims in Myanmar being marginalized. The Buddhists in Malaysia are that way. So at one point I asked them, what gives you hope for the future of Malaysia? And they all perked up right away and said, the ordinary goodness of the Malaysian people. And so this is back to where I started. The dialogue of life is the all-enveloping, and so both in Myanmar, I was told, the overwhelming ordinary Buddhists—they're good people. They're not caught up in this militancy, and same way in Malaysia. One last question: Coming to Ireland, one of
1: your pieces of research is on the first world parliament of religions, and. You have done some fascinating work by showing how the Irish Catholic religion were involved in this great intermediate event. Could you kindly comment on this, striking a positive note for Ireland?
0: Irish Catholics in the U.S. in the 19th century somehow convinced the officials in the Vatican that they should dominate the American hierarchy. Their rivals were the Germans at this time, and they edged out. So there were some German bishops, but they were in the minority. So it was a Presbyterian and a Swedenborgian, John Henry Beryls and Charles Bonney, had the idea to organize an unprecedented assembly of world religious leaders in conjunction with the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, 1893. So, John Henry Barros was indefatigable, so he writes to everybody. He wrote to the Cardinal who was Secretary of State for Pope Leo XIII, Rampola, inviting the Vatican to send somebody. He wrote to Cardinal Gibbons in Baltimore, wrote to uh, Archbishop Fionn. Gibbons was raised in County Mayo. Um, Fionn was born in County Tipperary. Now, Nobody had ever done this before. And Catholics did not have a history of good relations with most of the world's religions. So there was a meeting in, I think it was November of 1892 in Baltimore, of the archbishops of the Catholic Church in the United States, where they're debating what are we going to do? Now there was a bishop, uh, John Keane, from County Donegal, who was not there, but he was the uh, rector of the newly founded. Catholic University of America, and he wrote a brief answering most of the objections. Uh, objections were this will lead to indifferentism. Popes have condemned indifferentism, meaning all religions are the same. And uh, there was at one point there was a whole negative mood in there. John Keane had addressed all the different fears, and he posed the question: This parliament is going to take place. We cannot prevent it. The other religions will be ably represented. Can we afford not to be there? And then there was an older archbishop who was sitting kind of quietly, and he heard all these negative comments. And he finally said, Well, oh, gosh, what about the Apostle Paul? Wasn't he wrong to go among all those pagans? And so he just rhetorically turned the whole thing on its head. So if you reject the world problem of religions for this archbishop, you're. Implicitly rejecting the Apostle Paul, who went to Athens and famously spoke according to the Acts of the Apostles to the pagan philosophers and leaders. And so they came out of the meeting with a vote that Cardinal Gibbons, the part mate of the Catholic Church in the U.S., Archbishop of Baltimore, would ask John Keane to organize the Catholic delegation. It's the only Christian church that accepted the invitation. The Archbishop of Canterbury pointedly declined, saying this would lead to indifferentism, and he didn't like it that too many Catholics, the Church of Rome was going to be prominently represented. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire was invited to send a delegation. He also declined. Of the 20 or so speakers, almost all were born or raised in Ireland. So on the opening day, you James Cardinal Gibbons, who was viewed as the highest-ranking religious leader of all the different religions. So he's there with Vivekananda, Shaku Soyan, Javapala, uh, Confucian leaders, Jains, Parses, uh, unprecedented in world history. He opens the assembly with the Lord's Prayer. Then as kind of the host of the local church, Patrick Fian from County Tipperary, he welcomes everybody. And there's, in a sense, two different models. So the Protestant organizers, Bonnie and Barrows, they're very concerned about not attacking each other. Keane had kind of written the rules of the road for this. You're not allowed to do polemics against another religion. So very, very much discreet. speak, okay, we're going to talk about this positively and all. But it tends to be a bit atomized. Everybody's doing a separate monologue. Patrick Fiennes gets up and talks about friendship, developing mutual trust. And all of a sudden, without him making a big theoretical scene, the boundaries become blurred. Because it's not just about a series of monologues, It's more about getting to know each other and developing a new kind of relationship. One of the most important shifts is that the world's religious leaders begin thinking about how their own self-presentation will be received by leaders of other religious traditions. So Gibbons, in his opening speech, which he didn't give, the guy from Donegal gave it, because he wasn't feeling well, John Keane. He says, I'm not looking for the truth because I'm confident I found it in the Catholic Church. But what's really important is nowhere do we come closer to God than when we relieve the suffering of our fellow human beings. So he reframes it. This is not a contest over the truth, over doctrines. It's a question of relieving the suffering of the world. And then he closes by quoting the pagan Cicero, nowhere do we come closer to the gods That's by service of our fellow man, which probably anticipates the agenda of Pope Francis to be friends and help them well. well. Obviously, you are versatile and
1: goes back and forth from very concrete issues like mixed marriages to to historical interactions between religious traditions and giving different nuances and you contextualize them locally and globally. It's really a blessing and a privilege mm-hmm. to have you with us in the mm-hmm. long room and in the, in the college for the next two months.
0: I'm yeah,
1: and thank you for Jane and Francesca and, and Katrina and others for for bringing you here. Can I give you one more?